Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. If you had a choice, have you ever thought about what you'd choose for your last meal, if you had to? One last sweet taste of life before it's all over. Timothy McVeigh asked for two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. John Wayne Gacy got a bucket of KFC, which isn't surprising, because at one point he managed three of the restaurants. And Bundy refused to choose so was given the standard last meal on Florida's death row, steak and eggs. For me, I think I'd go for a full Thanksgiving dinner, turkey with all the fixins. On February 1st, 2019, former Georgia lawyer Richard Merritt was preparing to eat his last meal, his favorite meal, spaghetti bolognese, salad and garlic bread. But there was a twist. His 77-year-old mother, Shirley, was the one doing the cooking. Because this wasn't the last meal of Richard's life, he wasn't on death row. Instead, it was his last meal before he was scheduled to turn himself in to begin serving a 15-year prison sentence. Hours later, the table was set for two. The noodles were cooked, and Shirley's famous bolognese was still in a pot on the stove. But no one would ever eat Richard Merritt's last meal, because Richard had a few more crimes to commit. Join me now as we examine the case of Richard Merritt, a small-town lawyer who swindled his most vulnerable clients, only to have the entire scheme blow up in his face. You'll hear how a successful lawyer's fall from grace ultimately ended in the most shocking and unpredictable tragedy with the person who loved and supported him in his darkest time brutally murdered. It's no secret that the law profession routinely gets a bad rap on popular culture. Time after time we see lawyers portrayed on TV as sleazy, greedy, manipulative, or dishonest. From unscrupulous defense attorneys to the lowly ambulance chaser, it's often joked that those 98% of lawyers give the other 2% a bad name. After all, not everyone can be Perry Mason or Ben Matlock. But despite all those silly jokes, after listening to as much true crime as we all do, we know by now that having access to a good lawyer when you need it can make all the difference in the world. 
And that's exactly what elderly sisters Claire and Ingrid Hansen had hoped for when they looked for assistance from attorney Richard Merritt in 2014. The law office of Richard V. Merritt was located in the affluent Atlanta suburb of Smyrna, a city often ranked on lists of the best places to live in America. He'd only started his practice four years earlier, but since then, business was booming. Just a little bit of background. I was one of the few lawyers in Smyrna, and Smyrna has grown a lot since I started my practice in 2010, but it was right on the little village square across from the courthouse. Uh, I was the only firm there. That was part of why I picked that area, because I saw a need. I wanted to be the local lawyer that people went to first for help. And it was a very successful vision. In the spring of 2014, the Hansen sisters hired Richard to file suit against two auto insurance companies. But months and months went by without any movement on their case. And oddly enough, Richard could never seem to find the time to speak with the sisters about it. Naturally, Ingrid and Claire became increasingly frustrated with their attorney, but nothing prepared them for the news they were about to receive. In November 2014, the sisters learned their case had already been settled out of court for $70,000, and this apparently had happened back in October, a whole month earlier. But Richard never told them about it, and worse, he'd never given the Hansons a single dime from the insurance checks. He'd settled the claim and kept all the money for himself. As you can imagine, the Hanson sisters were furious and reported what had happened to local police. But the police refused to take any action, believing, at the time, it was merely a civil claim and not criminal. In the years to come, it would prove to be a decision that would have a devastating downstream effect. But for now, Richard continued practicing law, still presenting himself as the local lawyer that people went to first for help. Even though there were always a few unhappy clients here and there, Richard's practice was growing and his personal and social lives were booming as well. His wife, Janine, was a well-respected local veterinarian and together, the doctor and lawyer had become somewhat of a local power couple around town. But it had taken a lot of patience, hard work, and a little help to get there. I went to law school at Mississippi College School of Law in Jackson, Mississippi. I met Janine when she was a freshman and I was a junior. I'm about a year and a half, maybe a little bit more than a year and a half older than her. We met through a mutual friend. Well, early on, we, we dated off and on as, as kids do at Georgia, just enjoying the, the scene there in Athens. But as I proceeded into my senior year, uh, we became more serious and decided we wanted to stay in a committed relationship. We got married in 1999, about a week after I graduated law school. I believe she started her first year of vet school, either my second or third year of law school, because she was still had a couple years to go when I graduated law school. Um, he became an attorney quite some time after he graduated. Um, it took him three times to pass the bar. Three attempts passed the bar. I passed it the third time. I failed the first two times. I did thankfully have a 
job as a project manager with a local internet company, so I didn't have the pressure of needing the license, although it certainly would have been nice to, to get that under my belt right away. He practiced many different kinds of law over the years. He had a lot of different jobs at a lot of different firms doing different things. Eventually, Richard decided he wanted to level up by starting his own firm. And for funding, he turned to the person who'd always supported him the most, his mother, Shirley Merritt. His mother gave him all of the money that he needed to start his law practice. She did so much to help us. Um, she helped us buy a house when we were young. When we were first married, before Richard was an attorney, she helped us out financially because I was a student and we needed help paying our bills. Um, and of course, like I said, she gave him the money he needed to start his firm. Yeah, there were times when, when my parents helped us here and there while she was still in school, sure. In the meantime, while Richard and Janine worked hard to establish their careers, they eventually decided they wanted to start a family together. The firstborn is uh, our son, Jack. Jack was the kind of son that, that every father wants to have. He was smart, he was a sensitive kid, he was creative, he was, he was handsome, he was athletic, he was everything you wanted somebody to be. Just a, a real strong, special child. Uh, and our second born is our daughter, Mia. And my daughter, she um, is disabled. Um, she has cerebral palsy. Um, she's um, a delightful child. We did not know that she had a disability until she's about a year or so old. old. She was not reaching her milestones as the pediatrician wanted her to. And upon further testing, they realized that she had a, uh, a form of cerebral palsy. She required special schooling, special therapies. As she got older, she required speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy. She's had a couple surgeries to help her perhaps walk better. She, she can't walk without the aid of a walker. Having a child with special needs requires extra time, attention, and care from their parents. And while Richard was busy trying to establish his own law practice, the bulk of the time needed to care for Mia fell on Janine. As you can imagine, is extremely busy. I was running my cases, trying to get new clients, uh, attending court. It was just me to start off with. So those early years, I couldn't be at every single thing. Um, that was the case when I was at a large firm before I opened up my own firm. So I went to everything I, I reasonably could, but certainly I couldn't be at everything. Over time, Richard and Janine's hard work began paying off, with Janine establishing herself as a successful veterinarian and Richard's practice becoming increasingly lucrative. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We lived, I guess, what you could call like a fun jet-setting lifestyle. We had really good childcare, so we were able to travel a lot. Um, we went a lot of places. We had a lot of fun. Um, we had a lot of friends. We were very social. We had parties often. The only way to describe my family dynamic and my marriage was it was it was a dream. We were happy. We were fun-loving. We laughed a lot. You know, Janine and I did a fair amount of traveling. Um, we were always doing things with the children. We didn't like to sit around and watch TV. We weren't that type of couple. We weren't sedentary by any means. Um, it was just a very idyllic way to live, to be married and to, and to raise kids, to be in a place that you enjoyed, around people you enjoyed, and to, to be building something, to be building a future. Richard and Janine certainly appeared to have a dream life, and for a while, it really was. But as for the future Richard was trying to build, it would never be anything more than just that, a dream. In September 2017, a client of Richard's named Tina Saylor left a scathing Yelp review about his law practice. In all caps it read, he's a thief. Tina went on to claim that Richard was settling cases without informing his clients, forging their signatures, and stealing their money. A review that triggered an avalanche with more and more disgruntled clients beginning to share their horror stories about being represented by Richard. In the end, there were 17 clients, many of them elderly, who all had the same story. In total, Richard has stolen nearly $500,000 by settling claims and keeping the money for himself. It's no wonder Richard had so much money to jet set around the world and to buy himself a Porsche. In 2018, I was arrested in Cobb County for multiple counts of theft, forgery, and uh, there were some counts also of elder exportation because I did steal money from some elderly folks. But Janine was very upset, didn't understand what was going on, which is certainly understandable. I frankly didn't know the extent of what was going on, although I had a pretty good idea. I mean, it was overnight, it was as if a bomb went off in our lives. I served him divorce papers five days after he was arrested. When I found out about his double life and his crimes and what he had done to all those people and what he had done to us. He didn't pay our mortgage for six months, so we lost our home. At the time of his arrest, January of 2018, we lost our electricity because he hadn't paid the bill. I had a van that I used to transport my daughter and, my, and her wheelchair, and he pawned the van. At that time, uh, funds were extremely tight and limited. Um, I was in the Cobb County Jail. Janine was scrambling to try to make sense of what was going on and take care of the children. So my mother graciously offered to assist with his initial fee payment. 
Understandably, Janine was beyond infuriated with Richard and refused to help him pay his bond to get him out of jail. Instead, Richard's mother Shirley put up her own home to secure Richard's bail. Exactly what Richard had done with all that money he'd stolen remains unknown. Perhaps he'd already wasted all of it on his and Janine's jet-setting lifestyle. But when push came to shove, Richard was now completely broke. My mother was upset. She was disappointed. She raised me better than that. She had every right to be upset with me. It was a disgrace. But at the same time, I was her son. She truly did believe that one should hear out all sides of, of a situation before making an opinion, and she gave me the benefit of the doubt. The bond was $400,000. The down payment for the bond in order to actually get me out was 10%, so that would have been $40,000. My mother, it took about two months, but what she ended up doing was taking out a home equity line of credit, basically a second mortgage on her home, in order to come up with the 40000 once Richard was released on bond, he was required to live with his mother at her home in Stone Mountain, about 30 miles east of Smyrna. I had to live at her address, first of all. That was the first bond condition. Second condition was I had a curfew. I wasn't to drink any alcohol, do any drugs without a prescription, not to break any laws of the state of Georgia, pretty standard stuff. They also had me surrender my passport within the first 24 hours of release, which I did, and I was required to wear an ankle monitor. For the better part of the next year, Richard followed his curfew, wore his ankle monitor, and lived with his mother while awaiting trial. And while Janine had no interest in reconnecting romantically with Richard, she still allowed him to spend time with their children and continue bringing them over to Shirley's house so they could spend time with her grandmother as well. She was so close to my children. Her grandchildren were her entire world. She was the best grandmother. Um, she was at birthdays and baseball games and band concerts, and we talked to her a lot. We were together for holidays and birthdays. I would bring the kids over there to see her, um, and I, I did go over there and see her. By January 2019, in the weeks before Richard's trial, Shirley Merritt had become more and more stressed about the whole ordeal. Then, on January 14th, she opened up her mailbox to find a cartoon drawing of a courtroom scene. It was captioned, Tune in January 18th for another edition of Georgia Cobb County Justice, implying that the system was going to let Richard off easy for his crimes. For Richard and Shirley, they viewed it as a threat from enraged members of their community. To them, the cartoon meant if the courts didn't take care of Richard, someone else would. The night that she received the cartoon, um, she was upset. She started feeling dizzy, having difficulty breathing, having chest pain. She just was very concerned about the cartoon, about the effect on Janine and the kids. My mother had these symptoms. She decided that she needed to go to the ER. They admitted her, and I think she was admitted at early morning hours of the 15th, and she was discharged sometimes on the 16th. Two days after Shirley's discharge, Richard Merritt appeared before a judge in a Cobb County courtroom 
and pled guilty to 34 felonies. The judge heard testimony from the victims all day. I believe I was the final person to testify. And then the judge pronounced his sentence. The sentence was 30 to 15. Plus, I had to pay back $526,000 in restitution. With Richard's 15-year prison sentence, it proved anyone wrong who thought the system would go easy on him. But the judge did grant Richard a small courtesy. He gave Richard a period of two weeks to get his affairs in order before turning himself in to begin his prison sentence. And understandably, this didn't sit well with the victims of his crimes. I hope that when Mr. Merritt is in prison, that he has a lot of memories from spending all that money to keep him sane while he's in jail. He's a con man. He is a professional criminal. And when he gets, if you let him out on the streets, he's just gonna do it again. With Richard still wearing his tracking ankle monitor and his own mother's house securing his bail, the judge felt safe giving Richard two weeks to prepare himself for a 15-year prison sentence. I wasn't surprised. I wasn't upset. I accepted my punishment, and my mother and I got in the car, and we left and went back to, to her house in Stone Mountain. At this point, Shirley was pretty much the only person on earth who was willing to support her son, regardless of how disappointed she was in what he'd done. But the weight and stress of Richard's situation was continuing to take its toll on both her mental and physical well-being. For support, Shirley turned to one of her closest friends in the world, her late husband's cousin, Mike Jeffcoat. My name is Mike Jeffcoat. I'm 71. I am retired and have lived in Alabama every year except once since 1973. Shirley was married to my first cousin, Ken. Ken passed away in 2000, I believe. And I have known Shirley for as long as I can remember. And I just always thought she was a very genuinely nice person. She was an excellent cook. She was a great baker. She could make a coconut cake that would bring tears to your eyes. And she was just a genuinely sweet person. She worked in different capacities as her husband was transferred around the country. Uh, when, she, when they lived in D.C., she was a realtor in the D.C. area, in Northern Virginia and also worked at uh, here, most recently, at Children's Hospital. Even after Shirley's husband's passing in 2000, Mike and Shirley made it a point to remain close. We would talk on the phone, we would text. There were two or three times when I was in Atlanta for extended periods, and I would stay with Shirley for a, a period of time. Just, we were friends. His mother ended up telling me about, he was uh, accused of fraud and elder abuse. It broke her heart. And to see Richard throw away his whole life by stealing from clients just broke her heart, knowing that he was going to prison. Richard's clock was ticking, counting down the days until he would turn himself in to face his 15-year sentence. And as the day got closer and closer, Shirley began to question whether or not she was even able to bring herself to drive her son to prison. 
I was aware that he had to turn himself in on February the 1st by five o'clock. And I knew that would be very, very difficult on his mother. This whole thing had broken her heart and just having to take him down to start his sentence in prison, I thought would be too much for her. So Shirley and I and, and Richard had been texting and talking back and forth that week. And my wife and I decided that we would go over there on February the 1st and she would stay at home with Shirley and I would take Richard to report to prison. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Richard spent the final days before February 1st getting his affairs in order and making sure to spend some time with his children. My son Jack expressly wanted me to pick him up at his school that Wednesday and Thursday to try to get as much time together as we could. I certainly complied with that and wanted to spend time with him. That Thursday, we went for an early dinner. I took him to the Longhorn Steakhouse in Kennesaw of the Barrett Parkway. Um, I talked to him frequently during that time because he wanted to get some affairs in order and see the children and say goodbye to the children. Thursday night of that week, we met in a Starbucks parking lot and he said goodbye to both of the children. While Richard was saying goodbye to his children, Janine informed him that his daughter Mia had a routine appointment with a neurologist the next day at 8 a.m., the day he was supposed to turn himself into prison. She had an appointment with her neurologist um, early that morning, and he met us there at the appointment, which was unusual. Because for most of Mia's life, I went to all of her doctor appointments without him. I walked in, said hello to everybody, gave me a hug, and sat down and listened to what the doctor had to say. The way Richard tells it now, the doctor's visit was a perfectly casual, normal thing for him to have been a part of. But Janine's perspective was quite different. His demeanor was very strange. He didn't speak. He didn't look at anyone. He didn't talk to me or the doctor. At the conclusion of that appointment, the doctor said, Janine, let me walk you to your car because he didn't like the way Richard's aura was and his behavior. So Mia's doctor walked me to my car out through the employee entrance and stood with me until we safely got in the car and drove away. Richard did not walk me to my car. The doctor did not allow it. Richard's behavior at the appointment had been unsettling to Janine, 
but was relieved by the fact that he'd be going to prison later that day and wouldn't be her problem anymore. Meanwhile, Mike Jeffcoat and his wife had already left their home in Alabama to make the three-hour drive to Shirley's home. We knew this was going to be terribly difficult for her. We told her if she wanted us to stay at her home that night, we would. If not, then we would just turn around after I dropped Richard at the Cobb uh, County Courthouse and go back to Birmingham. Richard's tracking anklet shows that after leaving Mia's appointment, he arrived back at his mother's place at 9.38 a.m. Exactly one minute later, Mike received an unexpected text message from Shirley's number. I received text messages from Shirley asking me not to come over on Friday morning. It just says, things are not good here. I can drive into the jail and get myself home without any problem. Richard has some things he has to take care of this morning, so we don't need to leave here before 2 o'clock. He has a lot of things to, we need to talk about. I was a little disturbed. I didn't know what her state of mind was. I knew this was going to upset her. But I also knew that Shirley was a strong woman and could make up her own mind. And if she was requesting that I not come over, I was going to honor that. I was actually already on the road when I got this, and I turned around and, and went back home. Almost an hour later, at 1025, Mike received another text message. This time, it was from Richard. He said, thanks again, but as we both told you, she's okay. We need the privacy to talk through some matters. Please call her this weekend to check in. I cannot express how much your help has meant during this nightmare. I'll call you in a few weeks from inside. Love, Rich. At, at this point, this was just more confirmation that I was not wanted at Shirley's house, and she had a whole lot on her plate that day, and I, it, it, I just assumed that she was snowed under, and any communications with me weren't necessary at that point. For the next few hours, Richard's ankle monitor confirms that he never left his mother's house. It's difficult to imagine how a person must be feeling in the final hours before walking themselves into prison. Every sound, every smell, every sight becomes a reminder of the world they were about to leave behind. Like the Sword of Damocles hanging over Richard's head, you can imagine every tick of the clock like an alarm going off telling Richard his life was about to change forever. But the truth was, that ticking was coming from inside Richard. Because what nobody could have known at the time was that Richard was a time bomb himself, ready to go off. In one final act of generosity towards her wayward son, Shirley decided to prepare Richard's last meal for him before he was gone for good. And there was one thing people knew about Shirley. It was her exceptional reputation in the kitchen. She was a very good cook. I think I would say her specialty would be Southern soul food. <laughs> which everybody really loved. Um, one of the favorite things that she made was her spaghetti and the, the sauce recipe. And I actually use that recipe myself to this day. Shirley's famous spaghetti bolognese had always been Richard's favorite and Shirley loved making it for him. 
and at 77 years old, with Richard's 15-year sentence now upon them, this would be the last time a loving mother would ever cook her son a meal. Shirley began making her sauce, cooking the noodles to perfection. She also prepared a side salad and some garlic bread, sliced toasted and ready to serve. Her dining room table was set for two, but nobody would ever eat that meal she'd just prepared. At 2.30 in the afternoon, on Friday, February 1st, 2019, Richard Merritt's tracking anklets started moving again, but not in a way to set off any alarms to the monitoring service charged with keeping tabs on Richard's location. The last timestamp noted here is 2.29 p.m. After that, the unit shows in movement, leaving that location. He traveled north and arrives at a uh, quick trip gas station, approximately 2.52 p.m. Surveillance footage from the gas station shows Richard pulling up to the pump driving Shirley's silver Lexus SUV. He grabs a few snacks and puts $18 in the tank, paying cash before continuing on his way. There was no sign of Shirley in the vehicle. He goes north again a short distance to Interstate 85. He travels south to Interstate 285, uh, then gets on the top end perimeter around 285, traveling towards Interstate I-75. He travels north on Interstate I-75 uh, from the perimeter Atlanta area all the way up through Cobb County. Richard was required to turn himself in to the Cobb County Detention Center by no later than 5 p.m. And so far, the route Richard was taking made it seem as if he was driving himself directly to it. But instead of taking the correct exit off of I-75, he kept driving north. Past Kennesaw, past Ackworth, past Emerson, past Cartersville, and then continues up to just north of Cartersville in a community called White and exits uh, Interstate I-75 at the Cass White Road exit. That was at 4.12 p.m. At 4.14 p.m., I received a uh, strap alert indicating that his uh, the strap on his ankle monitor had been compromised. Immediately when I received the strap alert and uh, looked at his location and saw he was not at the Cobb County Jail, I could only surmise he was not turning himself in as the court order required. I contacted his pretrial officer and notified them immediately. Richard had just cut off his ankle monitor and was officially now on the run. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I learned that at 5.30, his lawyer called me to see if I had heard from him because he did not report. 
gathered together with my family and went as fast as we could to pick up my son where he was at the band concert because we were worried about Richard being missing and Jack being away from us. We were worried about what Rich might do. News about Richard's fugitive status quickly spread like wildfire among those closest to the family. When Mike Jeffcoat heard the news, his first instinct was to contact Shirley. I tried to call her phone several times and I uh, sent her that text asking her to call me. I can tell you what it says without looking at it, but, but basically it says, call me please, because I had already received the, the call that he had cut his bracelet and was running. It was very confusing. I didn't know what was going on. My main concern at that point was where was Shirley? I had several more phone calls with Janine and uh, a couple of other family members. I was aware that they were trying to locate Shirley too. I was informed that someone had called the DeKalb police uh, to come out and try to, to enter the home and see if Shirley was in there. Police went to Shirley's home to perform a welfare check just before six that Friday night. But when the officer arrived and knocked on Shirley's door, there was no answer. All the doors to the house were locked and see no signs of forced entry or indication of a struggle or foul play. Police had no cause to force entry into Shirley's home. When I got word that the DeKalb police had gone there and uh, did not have probable cause, after that I talked to Janine. I said, I need to get into that house. I was going to meet Janine and her dad the next morning at about nine o'clock Eastern time at the entrance to that subdivision to get the key from her to go into the house. They wanted to enter the house with me and I told them no, because I didn't know what I was gonna find. And so I took the key and went to the house. I checked all the doors. They were, all the doors were locked and secured with deadbolts. And so I went around to the back door and made entrance. I walked in and was checking the rooms as I went through there and did not see anything. And then I moved on into the kitchen in the den, didn't see anything there. I uh, went around to the living room and there wasn't any, and the dining room and there wasn't anything there either. And then I came back downstairs and was going into the, the downstairs area, the basement area. I opened the door to the basement area and the light was off. I went down the steps and you had to go down and, and make a turn to the right and when I made the turn to the right, after I flipped the light on, Shirley's body was laying at the bottom. I called her name. She didn't respond. I went down, checked for a pulse. There was none. And at that point, I knew it was a crime scene, and I backed out. The scene that Mike Jeffcoat had stumbled onto was both horrific and brutal. A tragedy magnified by the fact that the victim had been one of his closest friends for as long as he could remember. As soon as Mike walked back outside the house, he dialed 911 and reported what he found. Within five minutes, police arrived on the scene. So uh, just upon initial examination, she was uh, lying on the ground on her left side. 
Uh, it appeared that just looking at the back side, uh, there was dried blood from what appeared to be a cut. Uh, and that's all I could initially tell without uh, tampering with the body before the medical examiners arrived. She was at the bottom of the stairs, lying on her left side, um, kind of in a curled up position. When I flipped her over, I did um, observe what appeared to be sharp force injuries to her neck and also trauma to her face. Also, I observed a very large knife blade sticking out of her cheek, her right cheek. Crime scene for the police department had already been there, so they had items marked. So, uh, evidence marker labeled a uh, black handle to a knife, and evidence marker number four labeled a 35-pound dumbbell. So, in the right side of her face, uh, there was a um, knife blade from a chef's knife protruding from it. Uh, on the left side of her face, there were uh, basically blood tumors from where it appeared as if she sustained heavy trauma. And on the kitchen counter, there was a knife block that had two slots where two missing knives were from that knife block. Just in the kitchen uh, overall, there were pots and pans that were in the middle of cooking a meal. Basically, one was filled with pasta, another was filled with sauce, uh, there was a salad bowl. So it was in the middle of basically preparing a meal. The sheer amount of violence Shirley had endured at the hands of her killer was unthinkable. She'd been repeatedly stabbed and bludgeoned with a 35-pound dumbbell. Throughout the entire house, there wasn't a trace of a struggle, incident, or anything else that might give a clue as to why Shirley had been murdered. Only the bloody scene at the bottom of the stairs, DNA tests on the knife, as well as the dumbbell, would later prove entirely inconclusive to identify a perpetrator. But the only person known to have been in the house with Shirley that day was her son Richard. The same convicted felon who just cut off his ankle monitor, absconded from prison, and was now a fugitive on the run. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out who was most likely responsible, and a murder warrant was quickly issued for Richard's arrest. The only problem was, without the ankle monitor, it was impossible to know where he might have taken off to. Over the next following days, the U.S. Marshals launched a full-scale manhunt, certain that Richard would make a mistake and get himself caught. But days went by, then weeks, and then months, with still no sign of Richard. He'd completely vanished, like a ghost. In July 2019, Kelly Richardson, a PhD candidate living in Nashville, Tennessee, opened up an online dating app to see if she'd found any interesting matches. And there was one that caught her eye. His name was Mick Malvo, a 39-year-old with shaggy long hair and full beard, adding a bit of rugged charm to his appearance. Mick told Kelly he was from Louisiana, which with a Cajun last name like Malvo was certainly believable. But once Kelly got to know him, she found out there was a whole lot more to Mick than met the eye. He was interesting and fun to be with. He was intelligent and gregarious and outgoing and um, a very smooth talker. On paper, Mick didn't exactly seem like the kind of person that a professional academic would pursue. For one, his living situation was pretty dismal. 
He told Kelly he was currently crashing at his cousin's and sleeping on the couch. His job wasn't exactly glamorous either, working as a bartender at a local dive bar called Betty's. But Mick let Kelly in on a little secret. He was a successful executive who was just taking some time out to be a writer, but he was still this very high-class person and not someone who was a bartender at a Betty's. It's a dive bar. There was something romantic about Mick's story, a wealthy marketing executive choosing to completely slum it up for the sake of being a writer. If couch surfing and slinging drinks at some Nashville hole in the wall was what it took to inspire him, then that's how far he was willing to go. And Mick certainly seemed intelligent, educated, and polished enough around the edges for Kelly to believe it. Besides, the car he was driving was an expensive silver Lexus SUV. It all seemed to fit. Within three weeks of going on their first date, Kelly and Mick had become a steady item with Mick spending nights here and there over at Kelly's house. But before Kelly could realize it was happening, it seemed Mick had fully moved himself into her home. He was there all the time. It was getting to the point where it wasn't just, you know, a, a night here and there or a few nights during the week. He was there all the time. And I wasn't ready for that in our relationship and he wasn't paying rent. And we hadn't talked about moving in together there. When I told him that he needed to find a place to live, at first I told him to go back to his cousins, and he said that he couldn't go back to his cousins. And I told him I needed more space, and he became upset. He was pacing, not making eye contact, and and would go and like hold his head in his hands, and said he had no place to go, and and made excuses why he wasn't leaving. Kelly began realizing that Mick was more than just some overly dependent clinger. He was more like a squatter, refusing to leave and pushing Kelly near her breaking point. But as fate would have it, Kelly's problem would resolve itself in very short order. In the early morning hours of September 27th, near Vanderbilt University, a man was seen walking down the street suspiciously pulling on car door handles as he walked by, clearly up to no good. After police were notified and came down to take a look, they recorded the license plate numbers of all the cars that had potentially been tampered with. And it was then police realized one of the license plates didn't match the car it was attached to. The Lexus SUV they were looking at was registered to Shirley Merritt from Stone Mountain, Georgia. And it didn't take long for Nashville police to learn that Shirley had been the victim of an unsolved homicide investigation. Almost immediately, the U.S. Marshals looking for Richard were notified. This whole time, they'd been waiting for Richard to make a mistake, but in the end, it was a coincidence, a complete stroke of bad luck that tipped off authorities. On September 30th, Richard was arrested in Nashville by marshals at a local thrift shop, and that's when Kelly learned that Mick Malvo was actually much worse than just a pesky boyfriend. Instead, he was a violent fugitive wanted for murder in Georgia. It would be another three and a half years before Richard was brought to trial 
for the murder of his own mother, which he pleaded not guilty and adamantly denied he could have ever done something so heinous. At trial, the prosecution's case against Richard relied entirely on circumstantial evidence. Contrary to a somewhat popular myth, however, circumstantial evidence should not be taken as weak evidence. As an example, we've all heard the phrase, the smoking gun, which is just shorthand, referring to a piece of evidence that decisively proves the case. But if we take the phrase literally, a smoking gun is, by definition, circumstantial evidence. Someone gets shot, another person is standing nearby holding a gun, and there's smoke coming from the barrel. It's perfectly reasonable for a jury to infer from these circumstances who the person was that fired the fatal bullet. At Richard's trial, the prosecution's case was simple. The scene of the crime made it obvious that Shirley had been murdered while she'd been in the middle of preparing Richard's favorite meal. There was also zero signs of forced entry or even so much of a struggle inside the house, and the data from Richard's ankle monitor proved he'd been right there at Shirley's house during the presumed time of the murder. Then, there were the murder weapons. Both weapons had come from inside the house. A chef's knife from Shirley's kitchen and a 35-pound dumbbell that belonged to Richard. If someone else had come to the house with the intention of killing Shirley, you'd think they would have brought their own weapon. And of course, it was easy to demonstrate that Richard had acted incredibly guilty after the fact, fleeing the scene in Shirley's Lexus, cutting off his anklet, absconding from prison, and going into permanent hiding. Add all these circumstances together, and you get one giant smoking gun. So when Richard decided to take the stand and testify in his own defense, absolutely nobody other than his attorney had a clue what kind of story Richard had ready. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. I was walking from the kitchen. I had just left the kitchen from keeping her company while she was making the spaghetti when I heard a very loud knock at the front door. We weren't expecting any visitors. So I went to the front door and I opened it. And there were two individuals there, two men, and they both were pointing pistols at me. And they told me to let them in. I had never seen these guys before and they were pointing pistols at me, so I let them in. They shut the door. Uh, about this time, my mother came to the foyer where I was standing with these two individuals and 
they said, head to the basement and don't say an effing word. The taller of the individuals walked past me, put the gun at my mother's lower back, and she started to head towards the stairway to the basement. The fact they said head to the basement led me to think they knew we had a basement and had cased the house before. The younger of the men, he's probably about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, shoulder-length brown hair, pudgy, he put his gun on my back and we followed them. She opened the stair door to the basement, flicked on the light. It was a two, two-step process to get down those stairs. You had four or five steps that went down, there's a landing, and then you make the turn and there's the longer flight of stairs. After sitting in jail for the past three and a half years, having discovery access to every single piece of evidence the prosecution would use against him, this was the account former lawyer Richard Merritt told the court. My mother was crying. She was making sounds like she might be wanting to scream or shout. He told her to shut the F up and pushed her down the stairs. It was the worst sound I've ever heard in my life. Um, she plunged headlong into the wall. It's a sound I can hear to this day as I'm sitting here. And I could tell that there was a dent or a hole in the wall. She was trying to get up and move around, but from my vantage point, she appeared like she couldn't get her balance. As I moved like I was going to try to go down the stairs, the guy dug the pistol into my back and grabbed my shoulder. The gentleman who pushed her down the stairs, he ran down the stairs, turned the corner, and came back with the 35 pounds weight that has been seen during the course of this trial. This monster took this dumbbell and proceeded to bludgeon my mother right in front of me. And she was, she stopped moving at this point. And then the older guy took off up the stairs. He came back a few minutes later with the kitchen knife and proceeded to stab my mother repeatedly in front of me. I, I cannot believe what I was seeing. I didn't understand what would be the purpose because she wasn't moving. Why is any of this happening? It was a complete and utter nightmare. And there's nothing I could do. I had a, a pistol to my back. I couldn't believe this was happening. I had no clue who these people were or why they were doing this to us. It appeared that the version of events Richard was telling the court could account for every piece of physical evidence at the scene. Why there hadn't been a forced entry, why there was no signs of a struggle, and even how a certain dent was created at the bottom of the staircase. It was all, strictly speaking, technically and physically possible. But this is where the circumstantial case against Richard proved its strength. Because what could possibly explain Richard's actions after witnessing such a horrible scene? He then turned and looked at me and he pulled out his cell phone and he proceeded to show me a picture of my ex-wife dropping Mia off at her school, a picture of Jack being dropped off or picked up at Lovett, a picture of them all getting out of her van at their rental home in Marietta, and a picture of her either coming or going from her clinic and bindings. And he said, and I'll never forget this as long as I live, if you say a single word, they're next. I just witnessed an unimaginable act of violence. And then a man coldly look at me after he's standing over the body of my dear mother that he skewered and bludgeoned and shows me pictures of my family 
So no, I did not call the police. All I could think about was Janine and the kids and what these monsters could do. And I went and got a small backpack out of my room. I put a few few clothes, I didn't pack much, some basic toiletries, and I left. Richard's story was crafted in a way only a former litigator could do. Setting aside the fact that the cartoonish villains he described, one tall and thin, the other short and round, were basically carbon copies of Horace and Jasper from 101 Dalmatians. His grand explanation for why he'd gone on the run was one that also painted him out to be some heroic figure. The good guy, the man willing to become a fugitive, no matter the cost, in order to protect his children and ex-wife. Now, doesn't this all sound a bit too familiar? Doesn't it sound a lot like Mick Malvo? the rich executive willing to throw it all away so he could write the perfect novel. But the problem with the novel Richard was presenting to the jury was that it was filled with too many plot holes. Over the course of the past four years, not once had Richard ever warned Janine or told the police that her and the children's lives might be in any sort of danger. According to Richard, this was because he was protecting them by not saying anything. Yet here he was, in public, on the stand, with TV cameras watching, telling the entire story. It would take a much better writer than Mick Malvo to fix that giant gaping plot hole. When the prosecutor stood up to make her closing arguments, she didn't hesitate to look Richard in the eyes and tell him what the entire courtroom was already thinking. I want to be the first to say it. Mr. Merritt, that story was BS. I don't Instead, the prosecution offered their theory for what most likely had happened inside Shirley's home that day. I can't say for certain how Shirley Merritt ended up at the bottom of that staircase, whether she fell, whether he pushed her, or whether he chased her down there. But what is reasonable to believe is that Shirley started having a conversation with the defendant and told him that he needed to turn himself in and he went off onto one of those rages that his ex-wife had described. He lost it. He lost it. He was not going to turn himself in that day. And the one thing in his way was his mom. And that knife just happens to be the convenient weapon that was in the kitchen where she was cooking. And she fell downstairs or ended up down the stairs as he was stabbing her. He stabbed her in the jugular. She was on the ground, only had a few minutes left to live. He stabbed her in the face and the handle broke off that knife. He heard her moaning and just couldn't stand the sound because he had things to do. He had to take a shower. He had to pack up his toiletries. So he grabbed the convenient thing, the weight that was in the basement, and he finished her off. Folks, that is what is reasonable to believe happened in this case. 
When the prosecution and defense rested, the jury was sent out to deliberate. But the courtroom wouldn't wait long for a verdict. After only deliberating for one hour, the jury returned its verdict. As of count one, malice murder, we the jury find the defendant guilty. After the verdict, Richard offered a rambling apology without taking any real responsibility for his mother's murder. And on the same day the verdict was given, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Unless Richard decides to come clean one day, we'll never know the true motivation behind the brutal and unimaginable murder of his own mother, the one person willing to stick by his side through thick and thin. Throughout his entire life, Richard took whatever he wanted, regardless of how it might affect others. He'd stolen hundreds of thousands of dollars from vulnerable elderly clients. He'd pawned off the van his disabled daughter required to transport her wheelchair. And he preyed upon an unsuspecting college student for nothing but his own benefit. The sad reality, it seems, is that Richard simply felt entitled to do whatever Richard wanted. And on February 1st, 2019, Richard wanted to run away from justice, no matter who was standing in his way, even if that person was his own mother. Although Shirley's murder had occurred more than four years before Richard's trial, Mike Jeffcoat, who'd been one of Shirley's closest friends, wanted the court to know that although Shirley was gone, she was far from forgotten. Shirley Merritt was an absolutely wonderful person. She was a joy to be around. She was a very giving and loving person, and a great person was murdered by her own son. All this started almost five or six years ago now, when Richard was first arrested for stealing from clients, mostly elderly clients, and he showed then he had no compunction about doing anything. When it came time for him to go to prison, he couldn't stand the idea of somebody with an ego as big as his being sent to prison, and the court has convicted him of murdering his mother cutting off his ankle bracelet, running to Nashville, getting on a website and dating a woman and living with her under a complete and utter pretext. His whole life has been a pretext and I just want the court to know what an evil person he is in the eyes of his family. Everybody in the family has been impacted by this. Everybody's been impacted by the death of Shirley, we miss her still every day, and I want him to understand that and the court to understand that. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week... Thanks for listening.
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.